you know, we really feel like we've got to we we've got to have student engagement. You know, a couple of faculty members. It doesn't matter how passionate they are about cycling; it's it's not going to go anywhere. But I think with the NICA program, uh, we do have some potential to to get some kids at the school. So, yeah, that like I said, that NICA thing is so powerful and it's really cool. Not only because it it doesn't just get the kids that are already exposed to it; it exposes all these other kids to it. And then, you know, from the racing standpoint is one thing but it also gives these kids a lifetime sport um something to do a way for them to stay involved with their parents and i mean it's just it's such a cool thing yeah i totally agree man lifetime sports that's where it's at yeah Hello and welcome to ESP Podcast 49. Hey folks, here we are, we're back, uh, and on today's show, we are going to be sitting down and talking with multinational champion Todd Wells. Again, Todd has really been in the sport for a long time, turned pro back in 1997, I believe, and uh, he's won mountain bike and cyclocross national championships on multiple occasions so it'd be great to sit down and talk with him about his recent announcement of his impending retirement however before we get there i just want to reach out and thank a couple of my sponsors from 2017 uh as always rudy project rudy project making great helmets and glasses i've been using their photonic glasses this year and uh, these glasses are really awesome. They fit really well. And so a lot of times I get glasses that, that don't really fit my face. And that was always one of the issues in the past. And uh, I really like their Trelix. And these are even better. Uh, really nice adjustability. But also they have some uh, uh, lens bumpers that go around the glasses. And you can take those off if you want kind of a rimless uh, uh, lens, but also the 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 bumpers actually just kind of look cool, and you can mix and match your colors. So, so if you want to learn more, head on over to www.e-rudy.com. Also, gonna give a big thanks to Honey Stinger fueling my performance all season long. Uh, you guys all know how much I like Honey Stinger. Been been working with the company since 2003. And I can't speak highly enough about the product. Got to meet a lot of the folks when I was out in Denver. And uh, really, really awesome product line. If you want to learn more about Honey Stinger, including the Honey Stinger Energy Bars, which I really live off of, especially on those long training rides, head on over to www.honeystinger.com. 
And last but not least, I have really been lucky this year. I've been able to work with one of my all-time favorite companies, and I've been using their products for probably about 20 years now. And so to be able to actually be part of the team and be able to give feedback on the product is awesome. And that is, of course, Camelback. And I've been able to try a lot of their new products, particularly for running, and it's really kind of fired me up for more run races and run training and one of the nice things is that I've actually been using the the run vest and and this is like a you know like a camelback but you know again it it sits a little bit higher up but what I love about it is it doesn't flop around and I use that a lot on on really long runs on hot days I used to try to arrange my route so that I could hit water fountains and I don't bother anymore uh, so if you want to learn more about those products and I will be talking about some new products that they've sent me but uh, head on over to www.camelback.com and again that's C-A-M-E-L-B-A-K.com alright folks that's it for kind of the PSA advertisements but I want to tell you a little bit about what I've been up to before we get to our interview and basically I'm back to racing I had a an abbreviated Xterra season, really no fault of my own. A lot of events were canceled. A lot of events disappeared. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to get into my usual rant on on Xterra because it, it is very disappointing. I think that the loss of races has uh, you, you know been a direct result of kind of their their market shift, which is unfortunate. But nonetheless. I uh, took some time off in August, uh, had, got a new house, uh, kind of split in time between Winchester, Virginia and Richmond now, and uh, really just got back in the running and I decided this year I'm going to head back up to the EX2 Adventures Backyard Burn series for the fall, and I'm glad I made that choice. The courses have been super hard, but it's really helped me revisit running and be trying new things with my training, and I'm going to be talking about that on some tipcasts because I really think it's been helpful at, at kind of reigniting my progress in running, but the uh, series has been going well so far, sitting in first overall for my age group, but I've also gotten uh, to overall podium, so I'm excited to kind of keep that trend going into the winter and maybe pick up one more trail race at the end of the season, but also looking at 2018 and looking at a return to the USAT Off-Road National Championships, which will be in Waco, Texas, so got some big plans there and might have a new training partner, so looking forward to that. And last but not least, I've mentioned this a couple times, and I'm I'm really sitting on the news, but uh, we will be starting a new podcast series. Uh, it's still going to be the same podcast, but I'm going to be looking at bringing a co-host. I'm not sure if it's going to be a permanent thing or kind of a part-time thing, but either way, we're going to tackle a five or six-part series, and my new co-host, uh, which I'll announce probably before the end of the year, will be joining me and definitely offer her perspective. So I know I, I have a, a few women out there in the audience and a lot of times women ask me, you know, why don't I cover women's issues? And all I'm going to say is that we will be tackling some interesting topics. So you'll want to look forward to that. But 
I am going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we're going to be sitting down and talking retirement and more with Todd Wells. Stick around. Back to the ESP podcast. As promised, on today's show, we are actually bringing back one of our former guests, none other than the, I suppose, uh, now retired Todd Wells. Now, if you're not familiar with Todd's career, you may have been living in a bunker somewhere, but we're talking about a guy who has multiple national championships in cross country mountain bike, short track mountain bike marathon mountain bike national championships he's also got world cup top five placings and is a three-time national cyclocross champion which by the way was uh, our last interview we actually caught up with Todd after his third and final national championship in 2010 but the list doesn't end there Todd's a three-time Olympian He's won the La Ruta de los Conquistadores, uh, one of the hardest mountain bike stage races in the world, and he's won the Leadville 100 race uh, on more than one occasion, including in 2016. So without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Todd Wells. How you doing, Todd? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, when when uh, you know when I saw that news release, um, you know, it was, it was weird. It was like maybe about a week or two before that. I was thinking, wow, you know, we haven't heard a lot about Todd Wells, uh, you know, in the last like month or two. Uh, you know, I wonder what he's up to. And I saw the news release, and I'm like, oh man, you know, another one is is leaving <laughs> the sport. Yeah, well, I'm actually still through the end of this year, so I still have a couple races left, but. This is my last uh, last season collecting a check from uh, from pro cycling, so it's okay. exciting. So, uh, you know, with that, are are you planning on doing any cyclocross events um, through through the end of the year? You know, I had hoped to do the Boulder race, but that was last week or two weeks ago, and I just, uh, you know, I have a three and a half year old son um, transitioning into a new job as well, and the time has just been getting away from me, so. I don't know if I'll hit any cross races. I I have um like I said I have a couple races left. I'm racing the Iceman here in uh, Michigan. That'll be the beginning of November. I'll do the Tour of Tucson. is kind of like a Grand Fondo type of road ride. Right. And then I I have one more race down in Baja, Mexico, in La Paz. We ride. It's a 120k mountain bike race, kind of through the jungle. You you wouldn't think there's a jungle down there in Baja, but we get up to a couple thousand feet, and there gets to be some uh, pretty dense canopy, and it's really cool back there. So that'll be my last one around Thanksgiving. 
Very cool. Yeah, I know. I know how it goes with the travel. Uh, you know, I've got a two-year-old now, and and uh, I thought about doing some some you know just some mountain bike races in the fall, and I opted for some trail running races because those are easier to train for, easier to get to. You, they don't take up your whole day. Um, you, you know, and and that travel time does definitely wear on you. I uh, you know you know related to kind of my first question. Um, you know about why now uh you know but before i get to that you know how much does that that travel that 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 all the time travel as a professional cyclist really wear on you oh man that's that's one of the hardest parts for sure you know when you're young and you're just starting out you haven't been many places at least i hadn't been many places all i wanted to do was travel you know i wanted to go to every world cup i could see everything possible and you do that for a few years and then that kind of wears off a little bit you do it for a few more when you're getting serious and um, you're focused on all those results and you don't really get to enjoy the places that you're going because you're so focused on the race Uh, you go you ride the course you sit in the hotel room um, and then you leave and and sitting on that plane constantly it's just um, you know I had I started racing in 95 So, and then I started racing professionally in 97. So I've been sitting on that plane for a long time, and that is by far one of the hardest parts. Um, Over the years, I've cut back. Uh, After the um, London Olympics 2012, I I really stopped racing too much international stuff. I do one or two races a year, and I was more domestic, and that kind of felt like I was was somewhat retired at that point because I didn't have to do so many – um, international long trips where you're jet lagged, you know, a few days on each end. And then over these past couple of years is my, um, my son Coop has gotten older. You know, I haven't wanted to really leave him even for those short domestic trips. So it's definitely a big part of the decision. I mean, that travel is hard. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I, I do remember, Spend a lot of time on the road, and and I I remember uh, I I think it was last year um, just being down and and preparing for I I started racing Xterra um, uh, a triathlon and nationals were down in Arkansas and they were down like like deep Arkansas and I I was in a hotel for four days and <laughs> it sucked it's just like this is uh you know it, it brought back a lot of memories and I, I don't think they were like great memories um but it really made me appreciate you know being able to get back to family and and uh and doing that stuff so I imagine from from your end just the constant travel especially getting on an airplane and and an air flight and all that travel is just crazy it is that is that for me over these past few years has become the hardest part for sure. And I was going to say, did you race the bump and grind triathlon down there? Dex Terra? No, no. It was actually at Iron Mountain in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. And uh, they actually had the marathon national championships there this year. So uh, great course, beautiful mountain bike trails, but that place is in the middle of nowhere.
soccer, do something in the industry, ride a little bit. And so I had the opportunity to continue racing. And, you know, I had a couple of years on the contract and I figured I would, you know, kind of give my 100% to that. And then when that was up, I had I was hoping to retire, looking for the next thing. I had always assumed I would just stay in the industry and get a job with one of the one of the companies companies I had worked with for a long time, but that opportunity really it wasn't um, it wasn't jumping out. And I had a friend of mine here in Durango who owns a mortgage uh, a mortgage lending business, and he was asking me what I was going to do when I retire. We were playing golf this summer, and I told him you know the same thing I've been telling people for the last ten years since. People have been asking me, it seems like, since about the 2005 time frame when I was going to retire. Um, and he said, why don't you come work for me? And I went in there, checked it out, and thought, man, this is great. I can sleep in my own bed every night. I don't have to travel anywhere. Um, this is something that's interesting to me. So I, I took the classes, took the tests, got all the certifications. And you know, I started doing that kind of the end of the summer a little bit. And it just seemed like one of those things where, for me, I'm, I feel like timing is a big thing. Timing and momentum, uh, really big in sports and just in life in general. I feel like I've been pretty lucky to have kind of fallen into to timing. I hit the mountain biking as it was kind of just getting started or maybe not just getting started, but I was able to tag on to that, uh, that generation of mountain biking where all of the pros, the Ned and the Tomac and the Julie Furtados, they were still, they were world champs. The sport was just kind of taking off. They were the world champs of it. They all lived in Durango. Um, and I was able to kind of tag on to that. And I just feel like I've always had pretty good timing, not as a credit to myself, but just kind of locking into it. And this seemed like another situation. So I said, I think it's the right time and I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. Yeah, you know, you actually talk about momentum, and it's kind of funny because I actually teach biomechanics, and we talk about this whole idea of momentum and inertia from kind of a physics standpoint, but but really they do apply here because I see that with a lot of pros who are, are winding down their careers, and really things kind of just start falling into place, and that is really what shifts their attention and and uh, so it's kind of cool in, 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 in a manner of speaking because I think it really does help us make decisions that, that maybe we, we want to make and, and we're not quite ready. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of neat how things just kind of fall into place like that. Yeah, for sure. Like, like I said, I had, I had known that I was – I've been on the decline for a few years and, um, you know, of course I still – train just as hard as I can and put as much as I can into it. But I kind of know what my peak level was and the dedication and focus I had during that time period. And just with a kid now and where I'm at in life, it's just, um, you know, that it's not there for cycling. And, you know, I wouldn't want it to be there with all these other things going on that deserve my attention. And this was, um, like I said, it was just one of those things where it, it seemed like the right choice. And, and I figured I'd go for it. So yeah, that's interesting because you talk about kind of the this this change in sensation and and uh, you know we often hear pros talk about kind of these intangible factors. But what was it for you? What intangible factors? What 
what as a pro uh, really made the difference in performance you know what was it you know just all mental was it you know physical sensation uh, what what is that difference well i think it's pretty similar for all sports obviously each each sport has its specific things that you know help make those athletes really excel but you know for one at the at the top end of any sport everybody's got you know some good talent everyone is you know is talented just to make it to that level but then you have guys that you know their drive is a huge thing and you know all the sacrifices you need to make for mountain biking whether it's your diet stuff um you know a lot of a lot of mountain bike stuff now at the olympic level is very explosive so guys are in the gym a lot um the focus of instead of going out with my friends or instead of going to this birthday party or instead of going to this family reunion i'm going to skip that because i'm going to waste a bunch of energy and i'm not going to be able to do my intervals and i i talk about it in my little blog or whatever but it's at least for me, to be a great athlete or a good athlete, I had to be very selfish. Um, and I had to focus all my attention and all my energies towards that goal. And when, when you're in that, when you're, when you are focused on those things, then it doesn't seem like a big sacrifice because you're, you're so focused. That's just how it is. But if you step back from it and you look at it and you're like, geez, this guy or, you know, these athletes, they give up a lot to gain that little half a percent or quarter of a percent, but that is really what separates everyone. Um, and then you look at the mental part of it too, which is huge. You know, if a lot of these guys, if you're strong mentally, then you're going to be, you're going to be really, um, it's going to help you when the race starts to unfold. So obviously you need a ton of talent and you got to make these sacrifices just to get there. Um, but then your mental outlook at that level, for instance, when I was racing the world cup, I was focused on trying to race against the best guys in the world. And when I started out, I would, I would finish in 50th place, half an hour down or something. Um, and I just kept plugging away and plugging away. And all of a sudden I made it up there into that group or into the, you know, into that upper echelon of our sport. And it, it had this like mental shift that I, I deserve to be there or I belong on there. You know, you can't, <clears throat> you can't tell someone how to do that and other people might tell you it, but until you believe it, um, you know, it's not going to happen. And so I think a lot of those guys, probably all of those guys and girls that are at the top of those sports all think that they're, you know, they're going to be there. They have a chance to win that day. And, they're just, they're just so focused. And I, I, I talk about focus a lot, but for me, that seems like the best way to describe the difference from when I was, when I felt like I was most competitive to kind of where I was before that and where I'm at now. Okay. So along those lines, and I know that you're going to know what I'm talking about as soon as I say it, but uh, when it comes to the road scene, mountain bike scene, cyclocross scene, uh, why aren't Americans the best? Okay, we're we're good and we're getting top tens and and whatnot. But 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 when it comes right down to it, across the board in cycling, why aren't we the best out there? Yeah, um, 
That's a great question. I think on the mountain bike and the cyclocross, the road is a big draw for guys. So we have these athletes that could be great mountain bikers or great road guys, but there's no money there, so they right. switch to the road. And you talk about the when you get to that level where you're talking about the best people in the world, you can look at Sven Nice. And so he was the best cycle crosser of a generation, maybe ever. And he raced, you know, he raced on the road with Rabobank. He never won any classics. He raced mountain bikes. He's getting like, you know, I don't know, 20th at Olympics or, you know, maybe he has a really good World Cup in his 10th. But we're talking about people that are in – he's a guy that's in the league of his own when it comes to cyclocross. And during those years when he was so dominant, no one could touch him. Um, so I think a lot of our talent in cyclocross and mountain bike end up going to the road. And it's just – yeah, it's it's cycling, but it's just a little bit different. And when you're talking about the very top, those – you know, that percent or two percent, that's, that's everything. Um and then as far as why we don't have more talent on the road, we have quite a few good good riders on the road. It's just, um, man, other places, the, the road is so big. I think we had this whole generation that Lance inspired, and we saw those guys all come up now. And, you know, when, when Lance was kind of dominant, if you had three, four junior guys racing in Europe or, or U23 guys, you would hear about them. You knew every single road guy that raced in Europe pretty much if you followed cycling. And now there are probably 50 junior guys no one in the U.S. has ever heard of or juniors or U23s or there's guys even on world tour teams. People don't even know them. Um, so I think we do have a lot more depth internationally on the road scene. But it's just, you know, if you don't win the race, no one no one knows about you. That is one of the hardest parts of uh, – Road ra- or that's one of the hardest parts of cycling and just racing in general. I mean, one person wins, everybody else loses. If you're in a team sport, half the people playing win, half of them lose. So just, um, I don't know. I think we have the talent there. We just, we haven't had the, the Chris Broom or the Nino Scherter or these, these people come around once in a generation and, and they just don't happen to be from the U.S. right now. We had, in the past, we had, you know, John Tomac and Ned, and we had the Lance era, and we had like we had all these great riders, and it, we're not that far removed from it. It's just there happen to be the people of this generation that aren't U.S. and maybe it'll swing back here in the future, hopefully. Yeah, and I I, I think for you know for me coming from a you know more from a physiology standpoint. I, I think there are a couple things at play here. First, it, you know, I think that we all, always need to discount the, you know, the super great riders, the Le Mans, Indurain, you know, because they're just phenomenal talents above and beyond. Uh, but I think at this point what we have are not only great American riders and great European riders, but we have great training. We have great coaching. We have more of a, a uh, you know, for lack of a better term, homogeny of uh, of riders and talent that gets developed, and so it it does become more about the the you know the one the two percent. You know, are you on today or are you not on? But you're you're good. Um, and I think back in 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 particularly the eighties, you you could 
be you know just phenomenally talented and then everybody just kind of trained like you know just big miles and there wasn't a lot of specialization i do think that we're better able to just develop uh just all the physiology better so that everybody's coming to the race prepared there's no more you you come into the spring classics and you just you you know you race yourself to fitness i mean you know even on the mountain bike or in cyclocross you don't race yourself in the fitness because results matter results matter all year long yeah that that is a hundred percent true and i think um you see the equipment gets better and better as well the bikes are so light and aero and the mountain bikes i mean it's incredible the the leaps they've made with the suspension and the tubeless tires and just the the weights of those bikes have come down like you say everybody you know, on the road, you used to have the helpers and then the, you know, the one guy who was good. And now everybody is within a percent or two because everybody's training hard. Everyone is super skinny watching what they eat. And, um, yeah, it's just it, like everything, it evolves and just gets faster and faster and people get better and better. Yeah. So while we're on the topic of training, uh, when it comes to mountain biking, and and I I know I get this question a lot from riders, but but you know from your perspective, racing as a pro, uh, how do you get faster on a mountain bike? Do do you just go out there and ride your mountain bike and hope you get faster? Do you go out on your road bike and do a lot of specific training? Uh, what 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 is the general mix, both maybe from a professional standpoint and even from kind of a lower category standpoint? How do you get how do you get better mountain biking? Yeah, well, first of all, within mountain biking now, we have so many disciplines. We have the the 20-minute short track race to the now hour and 15, hour and a half cross-country race to a marathon race, which is three and a half hours, to a Leadville 100, which is six hours. So for me personally, I have a wide range or a spectrum of events that I train for, and I'll train differently for, for each of those events given their importance. So for instance, if I have the Leadville is always a big race for me. So that race requires a lot of volume at high altitude. Um, so for a short block of time leading into that, I'll be able to train specifically for it. Then when I look at a race, like say the Sea Otter Classic is always another one that I try to target. And that is in Leadville is in August, Sea Otter's in April. So for Sea Otter, it's very fast. Um, it's one of the few races in the U.S. that is an international field, so it's always super hard. And so that race requires completely different training, a lot sh- a lot of shorter, more explosive intervals. Um, it's early in the season, so there's a lot of good um, road rides going on where I'm, where I'm training at and some road racing. So it's almost <laughs> like motor pacing. Um, so each, each different um, discipline – kind of requires that the training be tweaked some. And then as far as what do I see people doing correctly or incorrectly, when you look at the top, if you talk about World Cup guys, just about everybody's doing whatever it is correctly because you're talking about the best guy in each country. So they're, you know, they've kind of figured out what works over the years. And to get to that level, they're all pretty dialed in with their training. And could they tweak it some to maybe gain a percent or two here or there, or maybe gain a percent? Sure, but I don't know. I don't know that exactly. But I'll look at a guy like Nino, who does a lot of very specific interval training, balance work, um, reflex stuff, 
just all sorts of this really methodical type of training who's, you know, he's he's the best guy right now. And then you look at a guy like Yaroslav, and he's also one of the best. I, I think it's him, Absalon, and Nino right now. And Yaro, he goes and rides his bike for eight hours a day. So Nino's maybe riding his bike one or two hours a day. Um, so everybody kind of finds what works for them uh, personally. But, you know, mountain biking too, for people that get into mountain biking, they like they're doing it for fun in general. People start mountain biking for fun. You hear them out there on the trails. They're going down a downhill. Everyone's hooting and hollering. They get to the bottom. They're high-fiving each other. So the sport of mountain biking, people will get into more for, I think, more for the joy of riding their bike. And then you look at something like road riding, and that is more of a fitness activity for people. People get into it because they want to you know, get healthy or lose weight or – I don't see so much guys hooting and hollering and high-fiving in, in the middle of a road ride. So <laughs> I think just the you know the the type of person that mountain biking draws is a little bit different from um, just a pure fitness sport. And then some of these people that are drawn to mountain biking for the joy of riding a bike, they all of a sudden realize, hey, I have, an, I have a knack for this or I have a talent for this. And then they kind of get into it from there. And so maybe they aren't as fitness focused, but the whole reason they're doing this sport is more out of a, a, a love for the bike. And I think that is very different from the majority of the people that get into um, something like road cycling, where I consider that more like a, a running type of activity where people do it more for a fitness type of thing. So then what would your training look like? As far as you know, the breakdown between mountain bike and and road training, and uh, and just to preface this, I, I remember when I got into racing back in the early '90s, and, and in '92 I would have been about 18. I remember that 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 most guys rode their mountain bike to to get ready for mountain biking, but there was this transition over to more road training, and and, and so I guess for for you or a typical pro what's that what's that 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 breakdown look like yeah well so it varies where i'm at and what part of the season i'm in but i would say i'm probably on my road bike 60 percent of the time and the mountain biking 40 percent just for an average you know if i'm in durango or i'm in tucson training somewhere where i have a home base and i you know i feel i know all the trails i know the rides i have a specific plan in place um, so, and then within that, during the season, I, I'm old school style. I race a lot. I, I love to race and, you know, that's, that's different from kind of the new style. You see a lot of people really kind of target their five or six races and they don't do a lot of racing in between. Um, so for me, I, I'm old school. I like to race a lot. And if there are no races, I like doing group rides. And then in the winter, I'm the type of guy who, I do big volume, lower intensity, and then as the season starts to ramp up, I do, you know, I start building in my intensity. And I, I started racing over 20 years ago, and that was kind of the, the method back then. And I, I did that for quite a while, and I think that I kind of developed my physiology or my training based around this big volume in the winter, and I really – I felt like I needed that to get myself to build my engine up big enough to be able to compete. It was 
when I didn't do that big volume and I just did a lot of shorter, uh, more intense intervals, I was more explosive, which you need for today's cross-country style racing, but I was more explosive in the middle of the pack, which didn't didn't matter. You know, I needed to be more explosive up towards the front of the pack, and in order for me to do that, I needed that that big volume. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I always, um, you know, from the training side of things, I, I always try to play different sides of it, uh, you know, just because the physiology stuff really fascinates me. And and uh, I, I remember being out on a training ride, this is a couple of years ago, and I just ran into a master's rider. And I, you know, I said to him, I said, there's probably four or five good training plans for one person. You know, which training plan you get might impact how you develop as a rider slightly, but there, there there's more than one way to train well. Uh, but by the same token, there, there, there are plenty of bad ways to train. Um, you know, it's just trying to find the mix that, that works well for you. Uh, you know, I think from, from your perspective, though, it's interesting to hear, but if, if say somebody who had been racing, uh, you know, a mountain bike for, for a while, uh, what, what is like one way, um, to, you know, to get faster, from a skill standpoint, and and this one, you know, really relates to me because this is something that I think about. It's like, okay, you know, I'm going to go out and ride my mountain bike, and I'm, uh, I, I'm going to ride different trails. But how is it from that skill standpoint? What what is it that's that that someone can do on their own um, that can make them faster on the mountain bike without more fitness? Yeah, well, that's one of the very cool things about mountain bike racing is it's it's not just fitness based. So, you know, you can find speed in a lot of places um, other than just pedaling the bike. And that's very cool. But I, I think a lot depends on the type of rider you're talking about. You you look at the World Cup these days, it's on Red Bull. You see there's all sorts of jumps and these crazy rock garden shoots and half the most of the races are in Europe and it rains a lot there, so a lot of times it's muddy. And then you talk about your average mountain bike race here in the US, it's generally pretty dry, uh, at least for most of the most of the country, and it doesn't have this crazy terrain. So I think a lot of the um a lot of gains for mountain bikers here, your average, you know, intermediate to expert level mountain biker <clears throat> can be made in in the co- cornering for one is a big deal. And then you can you you can set up drills, you do that by yourself. Um, it depends too. Some mountain bikers don't ride their mountain bike at all because they don't live near a trail system and they have a full-time job. So they get to ride their mountain bike once a week on the weekends or something. And there, those type of riders would just benefit from more time actually on the trail, which isn't really, for some people, isn't an option. But for me, I find my skills develop the best when I ride with other people that are faster than me. I, uh, I've raced mountain bikes for a long career and I've been relatively injury free and I think it's because I'm I'm too tentative and I know just going back to when I was saying I felt like I was at my peak I was fully 100% committed to it. I was I was giving my whole self to that course. And nowadays if I'm riding through something technical I'm thinking about like oh I'm not going to be able to play with my kid tonight or I don't want to be <laughs> walking around with a sling or you know so it's just a mind shift for me, but when as I ride with 
faster riders because a lot of times I train by myself. I have a specific workout I'm going to do or my time is just whenever I can jump out the door and go do it. Um, but when I can go out there and ride with some faster people, I always ride faster than I would by myself. And spending more time at that faster speed just gets me more comfortable at it and it becomes it becomes normal and that that raises my level up and I think a lot of people could benefit from that. Yeah, it's funny you say that because that was really what I was trying to get at is I think being able to train with somebody who's better uh, and I I think it's a little bit different than the road because a lot of times I I meet people that are new to riding and you know I invite them out on the road and and they're like oh no I I I can't go with you yeah you know you'll you'll you know you'll drop me and I'm always thinking like geez do I look like the type of guy that would get somebody in the middle of nowhere oh <laughs> uh, but uh but but you know mom it's a little bit different uh there there is more of that camaraderie and in in being able to ride with faster people uh and I and I generally find even if it's you know a person of uh, of equal level so somebody who's who's um you know maybe just as fast as you and, and about good in in the skill area but you both have different strengths and weaknesses and certainly anytime that you can ride with somebody um it's definitely going to benefit your your skills uh you know immensely um so so we uh, you know we talked about the training aspect uh, but one, one thing that I'm really curious because you've been in the sport for so long. Uh, what about equipment? What? And, and this is a big question, but uh, what do you think are the major changes that that you've seen from say '96, '97 to you know you're retiring now? What What about the equipment? I, I think has either surprised you the most or impressed you with where the 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 equipment has evolved yeah well there have been so many changes in the mountain bike you look at such a short time period relatively for a sport and to see the change that happened in that short time period is really really amazing <clears throat> first it started out we had um we had cantilever brakes then we went to v brakes and i remember my wheels would get bent at the time because we would always have soft aluminum wheels even though there were seemed like a million spokes in there the <laughs> rims were constantly getting bent and then the brake pads would rub the tires then you'd cut the tires you'd have a flat and you'd have to like stick something in there because the tire got cut from the brake pad so switching to disc brakes has been a big one not just for the stopping power but for the for the ease of use and the um, just the lack of maintenance, yeah. the disc brakes are so good now. Um, and then the tubeless tire has been huge. I spent, I grew up on the East Coast where it was rocky and rooty, and I spent so many time, so much time on the side of the trail changing flats. You know, I'd bend the rim and then I'd have 60 pounds in my tire, so I wouldn't pinch flat, and then it get cut with the brake pad or or something like that and now i i run generally in the low to mid 20s psi wise whereas i used to run 60 and you get so much better traction and it's a much more supple ride and then the suspension <clears throat> everybody raced hardtails when i started racing and when i started i didn't even have a front suspension fork so i just had a completely rigid bike and what we've seen now with the suspension, the lockouts, the 
pedal platform, the efficiency of the pedaling is just insane to what it was. And the lockouts work so well, and they're right on your handlebar. And then to top all that off, we have the bigger wheel sizes now, which carry speed better, have a bigger contact patch. But really, for a tall guy, it just seems to fit better, and they roll over things so much easier than a 26-inch wheel gets stuck a lot uh, a lot more often if you're in a slow speed kind of pick your line down a rocky thing um, than a 29er wheel so I mean the technology just across the board everything has gotten better and the the trails we were riding back in the 90s there were hiking trails or some guy went out and rode them on his motorcycle or something and now we have these purpose-built mountain bike trails so not only is the equipment so much better we have these trails that were designed for mountain bikers. Um, it, it's just a, it's been really cool to see the evolution and um, just kind of experience that throughout my career has been really nice. It just keeps getting better and better. Yeah, I I remember watching some of the old race videos uh, or, or race footage from 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 the '90s and and. Uh, one of the, the the things that always stuck in my head about those early mountain bike races was there's all they were always pushing their bike up a hill, you know. And these are the pros, you know. So so these are wicked steep climbs, uh, and that seemed to be the hallmark. It was it was, it was some crazy climb that you know almost nobody or nobody could ride up. Went up really high, uh, you know. The 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 course was more about a physical fortitude test not to say that those guys weren't great mountain bikers but uh but nowadays it's it's like you look at the race courses at the world cup level and and it, it, it is purposeful you know there there are sections that are very purpose built uh to test not only the you know the physical capabilities of the riders but also the uh you know the skill capabilities and the you know the mental fortitude uh, you know, being be, being able to ride that stuff again and again every lap. Yeah, I mean it's crazy, and you see it on TV does not do it justice. I mean, you sprint up that thing with your heart rate feels like it's in your throat, and you're banging elbows with the guys. You fight for every inch, and then you have to drop into some insane little downhill shoot thing that you wouldn't want to walk down, more or less ride your bike down, and you do that lap after lap after lap. It's really the, um, it's really amazing what the what the riders do today. Yeah, yeah, and in the skill level is just absolutely amazing. Um, it, it's funny. I'm 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 at, actually uh, I got a copy of Ned's book, uh, Mountain Bike Like a Champion here, and I was just kind of skimming through it to look at tire pressure, and and yeah, his recommended tire pressure is usually 35 to 40. Uh, you know, and he definitely says you never want to run it under 30. Uh, for risk of snake bites and I have to say coming back into mountain biking back in I think 2009 uh, yeah the tubeless tires and the disc brakes were just absolute godsends and I'm I'm pretty light so I'm I'm usually weighing about 140 and and, and so I can run my tire pressure really low um, and it's it's you, you couldn't do that you could not do that with an old mountain bike tire that was narrow it it it, it you know the tubes, the rocks. There's just no way that you could actually ride that bike. No, and you look at Ned. He also is really light and super skinny. I mean, he has veins popping out everywhere. You you look like if he got a paper cut, he would bleed out type of skinny. 
So, you know, again, for him to run that type of pressure, that's me running, you know, 55, 60 pounds. And it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. 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 For sure. The, 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 the equipment's been amazing. So, um, you know, from, for, for you, and I know like when, when it comes to equipment choices, I, you know, trying to, to, to recommend to somebody what, what to do. But one of the questions that I, I, I always get, particularly at, at exterior races is, is about tire pressure. Um, how, like, how do you go about checking tire pressure or trying to dial in your tire pressure based on the course? Like, what, what are some of the things that you go through? Are you really, kind of scientific like say like a guy like jeremy uh 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 powers jeremy powers who's seems to be super super meticulous about everything he does what is kind of your thought process about tire pressure for me i'm definitely on the less meticulous side and i don't know if it's just because i've been doing it for so long that it feels almost kind of innate that i know the tire pressure that i'm looking for on a specific course but it a lot will depend. The, the bigger the race or the more important the race, the more specific I'll get with the tire pressure and trying to really dial it in. But in general, I'm looking for, again, I do so many different types of races, but for a cross-country specific race, I want to have the tire that's going to – I want to pretty much run the lowest pressure that I can that I'm not going to get a flat tire at the race. I don't like it, and I don't like a real squirmy feeling tire. Some people do, but unless it's rainy and muddy, in which case I'll run the absolute lowest tire pressure. I like the tire to be firm, and I don't, I don't like like it when it feels like it's kind of peeling off the bead when you get that really good traction and you're leaning into a corner. Um, So I like to have a, a supple feeling tire that. It doesn't feel like it's super hard. I'm getting good traction in the corners. I'm getting good traction on the climbs, but it's, you know, it, there's enough pressure in there. It's not going to feel too squishy and I'm not going to get a flat tire if I run over a root or a rock or something, you know, your average, your average root or rock because you can get a flat tire anywhere and you can get offline or hit some hidden thing and get a flat no matter how much pressure you're running. But I, I feel like there's a kind of there's a pressure that I can feel um, that I know that okay this pressure is pretty safe I'm going to get good traction I'm going to have some good puncture resistance and it's going to be um, what I'm willing to go with for this particular course. Yeah, I I've generally found that I'm running pretty much the same tire pressure most of the time, um, and it's fairly low. But but yeah, there seems to be that threshold between. Low and comfortable and and low and squirmy, uh, and and it's just uh, I that that's the one thing that I always tell people is like all right you know if you do want to lower your tire pressure you know first and foremost make sure you have tubeless tires you, you know so you don't pinch flat but but don't do it you know don't do it the morning of you know if you've been riding on thirty five psi for like the last three or four months. Uh, probably the worst thing you can do is drop to 25 or 20 because uh, the bike's just not going to feel the same. Uh, and, and you want to at least have confidence in there. So That's for sure. I mean, you see it all the time. People, they, you know, for whatever reason, people are busy. Cycling isn't their job. They're They're doing the races, but it's not, you know, their day doesn't revolve around riding their bike. So they get to the race and all of a sudden they're focused on it and they think, oh, maybe I should do this or that or – 
whatever. And it's, you know, I always try to tell people to slowly implement these changes and, you know, do it away from the race. So we talk about training and we talk about getting faster on the mountain bike. But one area that I've always been interested in is the development area. And again, I've already asked you about, you know, kind of why the U.S. isn't at the top of their game, either in the road, mountain bikes, like across. If somebody came to you, if I came to you and I said, Todd Wells, what do we need to do here? What would be... Uh, kind of your top of mind suggestions or recommendations to get U.S. mountain biking back to the top level in the world? Well, first of all, we need some teams there to develop these kids into because right now we have more development going on with the NICA programs, with the um, collegiate cycling than we've ever had. Um, I think the Utah state champs are this weekend. There's 1,200 kids doing that. The Colorado state champs are this weekend. There might be eight or 900 kids doing that. And, you know, sure, some of those kids would be riding bikes anyway. Their parents ride or they're just kind of – they're um, they're they're driven towards the bike. But there's a lot of people in there that might have this huge talent for cycling that would have never been exposed to it if it weren't for NICA. So I think we are – we're already seeing this kind of transformation where we're going to have this influx of kids that have been developed through NICA and then go on to race collegially. We have the collegiate champs going on this weekend as well. And so there's this, I think there's a really great um, kind of development thing going on, but there's nothing for these kids to develop into. Sure. If you're the best person, if you're a junior and you win junior world champs, you're going to get a job. But you look at a guy who I think is the best chance we have for mountain biking right now, Christopher Blevins. He's been, I think he's been fifth at junior world champs. He won, um, he's won junior national champs. He's, um, he races with the action road team. He won the peace race last year. I mean, he's got all this, this crazy talent. He's won BMX national championships in the past. He's kind of exactly what you would design up for a kid to be a mountain bike racer. Um, but there's just not a lot of teams out there. So my biggest fear is he's going to go over to the road, just like everybody else does. You look at Pete Stetna, he helped um, guide guide guys to the Giro win or up there in the Giro and he was a mountain bike racer before he raced on the road I'm sure he would have loved to stay on the mountain bike but it's just so much more opportunity on the road that kids at that age you know it's either go to college or graduate from college and your parents have kind of supported you all this time and it's like well do they are they going to continue supporting you so you can maybe someday make some money racing mountain bikes or are you going to go ride for this road team that'll at least pay you a little bit and you'll get to race all over the world. Um, so it, it's really hard. I think we need the teams out there for these kids to develop into because I think what we have with NICA is, um, is really powerful right now. Yeah, yeah, I think you make a great point there is that uh, if we want to develop great riders, uh, you know, World Cup winners, we, we've got to have some place for them to be and and I I you're 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 probably more knowledgeable about this than I I am for sure but uh but I just can't see um how 
a a really talented young mountain biker is going to make the leap to kind of that that European mountain biking scene cuz it's almost like it was you know back in the 80s for road cycling it's 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 hard to when there's so few teams and so few chances to 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 get in there at least with the road they can go over to Europe they find a european team they they you know they get a lot of racing experience i imagine it's got to be much more difficult with mountain biking yeah i mean there's just less exposure to that and it's harder to be one of the people that get that exposure so even if you get it, then you got to be one of the best guys doing it in order to have any team to develop into. So not only do you have to have this great talent, you have to be pretty far along in your development as a, a junior or U23 rider in order to kind of pique the interest of anybody. Then for your one or two chances that you get to go to Europe, you have to be set up to adapt well to that. You might be the best rider out there, but you might, you know, you might not be comfortable there or whatever it is, it just takes a lot of things to go right to get somebody to that high level over there. It just, um, it's almost so much is going against you that it, it seems like it's almost impossible. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, and, and you're coaching now. I, I think from a coaching standpoint, you know, at least for your business, are you coaching developmental riders? And, and, and if you are, what are you really looking for when you're, you're looking at those young riders and saying, you know, what can I do to, to, to maybe get this rider to the next level? Yeah, well, for one, I work mostly with older riders or it just, it has kind of developed that way. I have a few younger riders, but one of the things I really look at, and when I was coming up, my coaches looked at it, it was more of a kind of overall view. Because we talk about <clears throat> like some kid who's this amazing talent goes over to Europe and just craters because they've never been exposed to that before or they have never been away from home or whatever it is. So for me, I look more at the whole kind of picture. Now that I'm older, I have a kid, a family, a, now I'm transitioning into a real job. I, you know, the time constraints are huge and you can have this great pr training program. You have a training program for Chris Froome to win the Tour de France and you have some master guy that works 60 hours a week, has a family and they can maybe ride eight hours a week and that, that plan isn't going to do anything for them. So I really kind of, I try to look at everything going on in somebody's life to help develop a plan for them. Now, along with your coaching, you're also doing some other services there or, or featuring some other services. And the one that I found interesting, because I was checking out your website, is is the hired gun. And and I guess you're you're, you're going to come in and you're going to be a domestique for somebody at an event. Uh, where did that idea come from and what what would I expect if I were going to hire you as my hired gun? Well, so a few people had approached me and said, hey, we do these these rides where we're taken care of just like a pro. And I have, over the years, Leadville has become a big race for me. And so that is one that a lot of these people that are successful professional people they they kind of pick that one they target that one that's that's the race they want to do and that race having somebody to essentially be your domestique is so huge because there's 
it's a mountain bike race, but there's tons of drafting. It's super long, so you're constantly needing food and nutrition and everything. And I thought, well, you know, what a great idea. I could help this person, um, you know, achieve their goal at Leadville because it is so valuable to have someone's wheel to sit on the entire time. A lot of these guys are stopping in the feed zone, getting food, putting it in their bottles. They're carrying camelbacks full of stuff. And all of that, I mean, to carry a camelback up there at 10,000 feet when you're climbing 12,000 feet full of stuff, that's a huge, a huge limiter. It'd be like riding with a, a five pound plate from the gym strapped to your back. Yeah. And so basically what I can do or what my idea has been is to eliminate that. So right off the bat, they're, they have less weight. A race like that, it's high altitude. There's no oxygen. The weight is a huge limiting factor there. So <clears throat> that's a big, a big help. And then the drafting thing as well. Some people, they're not as comfortable sitting in a group, sitting on the wheel, or, you know, they'll go too hard, they blow up, and then they're, they're dropped back to a group and they get to a road section and they might be in a group, but they might be pulling on the front the whole time instead of sitting in the back. And, um, so I just kind of came up with this concept where I would be the person's domestique and I'm actually gonna do that for a guy down at the Tour of Tucson in a couple of weeks. That is really cool. So, Maybe someday I will need a hired gun and I'll be contacting you. Um, but I'm going to move move on here uh, because I know we're 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 uh, running low on time. But I listen to a lot of podcasts, and one of my favorite podcasts is Make Me Smart. And their favorite question is one of my favorite questions, and that is, with you retiring now, what is something that you thought you knew, but turns out you were wrong about oh for one the nutrition side of it i always thought you know i'm i was supposed to be topped up with fuel all the time i would finish eat a bunch and i for me i was never i never wanted to be hungry no one ever gets into mountain biking because they want to be hungry but one of the biggest benefits i had was when i started to realizing my career how powerful losing a little bit of weight could be for my results and I couldn't do it all the time and I don't know that it's the you know the healthiest thing to do but for from a pure race perspective and you look at the guys in the tour or you watch these road guys all the time and they're so skinny you don't get that skinny by feeling full and going to bed happy and all of that I I realized over the years if I wanted to get skinny and lose this weight I had to really um I had to cut back and it was it was not pleasant and I was horrible to be around but it made a big difference to me. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I I've actually taught sports nutrition in the past and 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 I've often brought up my my endurance background uh, uh for better or for worse with students and I really try to 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 bring home this point that uh when we're talking about athletic performance and really at the elite level, we're not necessarily talking about the healthiest lifestyle. We're talking about trying to optimize our performance, and they don't always go together. When we're talking about athletic performance, that's different from what we're talking about health and fitness. And, and I, I, I think you're, you're, you're definitely right. Um, it's not something that you want to ascribe he uh, healthfulness to, but there yeah. are things that 
you need to do to be a professional athlete uh, on top of, you know, or, or say in contrast to, you know, if you're a, a, if you're an economist or you're a physicist or something, you know, there are things that you need to do that, uh, you know, are going to get you to the top of your field. Uh, and I really do think that that nutrition component is one that, that, that you need to be open. You need to be open to, to kind of hear ideas and, and even try things because what works for one person doesn't work for everybody. Yep, that that is for sure. And, you know, you always think or people think of these athletes as being super healthy. But when you get to the top of any sport or any field or whatever it is, I, I don't think that it's necessarily healthy. No, no, definitely not. And and I have to say, while, while I'm sitting here, I'm I'm actually thinking of something else that 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 is somewhat related. And and this relates to Tyler Hamilton's book. And it it really only relates, I think, from a tertiary standpoint to doping. Uh, but one of the interesting things that he talks about in that book, and 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 I really only learned after you know I really had quit full time racing, is that there there's a myth about professional athletes having like superior legs or in order to win a race you have to have you know this super day where you always feel good and 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 Hamilton really points out that you know a lot of days you just feel awful but you still have to do a job and I, I wonder if you can speak to that from your professional experience yeah I, it's funny because I remember one thing a team manager had said to me, a, you know, a long time ago when I was first getting started and, he, you know, we were talking about peaking for these different races and what I was going to do. And he he told me, you know, it doesn't matter if you have good legs that day, if you've trained properly and, you know, it might feel horrible. Um, but if knowing that you have that fitness in there and you can't do anything about having bad legs. Of course, you try to prepare as good as you can, but on that start line, some days, you know, it just doesn't feel good. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a great result or a great race. It just means it's going to hurt more than those magical days when your legs seem to feel great and it seems to feel effortless. Um, you know, you just have to push through those days because you never know when you're going to get that that good result. It might feel horrible and it might you might want to quit. And, you know, that day might be the day you're going to win your race or have your breakout performance or set your PR. So it just always um, you just show up on race day ready to race regardless of how you feel. Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, certainly words to live by. So where can people find out more information about you and the coaching that you offer? Sure. Well, I have a coaching business called Wells Coached. That's W-E-L-L-S Coached. And I have a website, wellscoached.com. And then just for, for me personally, I have my own we website, toddwells.com, and I'm out there on all of the different social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, as Yo T. Wells. Very good. Well, Todd Wells, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk to me tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye. Well, folks, that's it for another ESP podcast. Again, I want to thank Todd Wells for taking the time to come on and talk with me. Uh, I really, I do really enjoy doing the podcast and being able to sit down and talk with people, which is why I'm, I'm really excited about 2018. 
getting back to a lot of the podcasting that I used to do, uh, especially talking with people and having some some great discussions. So I think you will uh, definitely enjoy that as well. But I want to remind you that the podcast is not free for me to produce. And we have incurred a lot more expenses this year than in past years. And if you do love the podcast, please head on over to www.espanswers.com. That's www.espanswers.com. Hit the donate button. You can donate through PayPal. Uh, And I'm working on getting a donate button for Venmo because PayPal fees suck. Uh, But anyways, you can also drop me an email if you have questions uh, about the podcast or training questions in general, suggestions, uh, as Lance Armstrong loves to say, God, I need suggestions. But uh, really, head on over and email me at esppodcast at gmail.com. That's esppodcast at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook and on Twitter at the handle esppodcast pretty easy and on our next podcast which probably should be out in December we are going to actually be talking about the 2018 podcast series and looking at getting my co-host come on and talk about some some exercise physiology related stuff kind of leading up to that also be on the lookout for the next tip cast I'm going to be doing a couple tip casts just getting at the heart of running and run training and of course at the end of the year we're going to be doing our 12 tips of christmas yeah i I, I did just say it um i'm not looking forward to christmas just yet but it is around the corner so remember folks if you're not thinking ahead you're falling behind later